Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston on News Talk. Hello there and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and we've got some great guests lined up for you today. Coming up on today's show, Christmas came very early at the Department of Finance this week as Exchequer figures revealed a bounce back in corporation tax. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times is going to be here to give us his assessment on all of that and we're going to look at the wider economy as we head toward the end of the year. And later on in the show, the best-selling author and New York Times journalist Rob Copeland joins me to talk about his new book. It's called The Fund and it's about the notorious hedge fund manager Ray Dalio. And finally today we'll be turning to the US again for our last story with Ron DeSantis and his latest bout of turmoil as the race for the US presidential nomination for the Republican Party continues. Caroline Vakil, who's campaign reporter with The Hill will be here to take us through what's been happening this week. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com I'm also open on x at stockNT. So let's start today with Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times to look at those exchequer figures that came out this week and to get his always excellent assessment of what's going on in the wider economy. Cliff, you're very welcome. Uh, good to be here, Mandy. Now, Cliff, this was kind of a week of two halves for the government, if you like. Uh, they had the corporation tax figures and Christmas was back on in the Department of Finance yeah. and then they had IFAC. So let's start off with the corporation tax figures. Sure. Up 27% this month. Huge sigh of relief. Why did they go up in your view? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And one of the things I suppose to bear in mind here is that when inevitably we're into some speculation here because we don't have details about what companies are submitting to the revenue and what tax they're paying and why they're paying it. But the story seems to have gone like this. There, were, there was a fall off in payments uh, over the previous three months, uh, which now... I think we can safely say we're related to factors in specific companies. Um, Apple would be one of those companies that had some reorganization, which means they paid less tax in one of the months earlier in the year. And perhaps more significantly, Pfizer, uh, who make a big tax payment in November, sorry, in October, which is one of the months when um, tax was down. Um, they've seen a fall off in profits after COVID because they had a huge run up. Um, during the pandemic from vaccines and so on. Um, so so, so they were the two factors that hit uh, the earlier figures. But what the November figure showed us was that those kind of worries and concerns aren't affecting tax payments more generally. Uh, it seems that in, in the tech sector, as far as we can see, there was, as we know, some retrenchment last year. There were some job layoffs, some pressure on profits, but... Profits in that sector seem to be coming back, and in the farmer sector seem to be seem, seem to be solid enough across the board, uh, and and both are are on an improving trend. So this seems to have fed through to a surprise jump in uh, in corporation tax here again. From it was five billion in November twenty twenty two, and it's risen to uh, a surprisingly high six point three billion mm. in November this year. So great relief in government buildings. Uh, and in the Department of Finance, there was definitely a worry that, that a negative trend might be setting in. This would have implications for meeting budget targets this year and more significantly, I think, next year and, and the next October budget, which uh, may be the last one or is likely to be the last one before the next general election. So, mm. And does this, does this put them back on target now, uh, Cliff, for their end year figures? Yeah, pretty, pr- pretty much, Mandy. Um, 
obviously we still have December to come to see what consumer spending is there and, and you know that affects VAT returns and things like that. But in broad terms, uh, yes, I think there is confidence now in the department that they'll pretty much meet their overall budget surplus targets, which is uh, north of 8 billion, 8.3 billion, and also that the target for corporation tax, which was revised down a bit on budget day, that the revised target will be met. Uh, Still relying on a bit of money to come in on December there, but uh, it looks like they're broadly on track. Um, And in turn, then that, I think that gives some security for next year. Mm. uh, Because, you know, if there'd been a fall off this year, you know, a sharp fall off this year, then they would have been, yeah. Next year's figures as well. So um, one of the things that the, the blip over the last couple of months in corporation tax has done to help the government, I think, with their narrative is to, you know, bed in that notion that this is windfall and that we can't depend on this. So that has helped them in some respects to kind of sure. demonstrate that you can have this drop off in the pharma industry and the tech sector and it can really, really affect us. So I think that's been helpful. But They've also, um, on the other side of it, uh, been accused of quite a little bit of windfall spending themselves. Let's just take a quick listen to what IFAC had to say this week on this station about the government's latest uh, budget. You might think of something like spending on COVID as a very exceptional item. And therefore, we, we, we're OK with thinking we spread that out over many years and we don't try and force everyone today to pay. Other things like, you know, normal capital investment of the government. So when they're building a new hospital or a school, that forms part of what we would call their core spending because it's their, their normal business of their job. Even this year, they redefined something as windfall capital spending and therefore took it out of their rule. This is like if you had a diet and you said, I'm not going to eat like sort of treats but then you redefine what a treat is. You start saying, well, a biscuit isn't a real treat, so I'm allowed to have biscuits. Cliff, biscuits are okay now. Windfall spending <laughs> on capital. Can you just, like, just the just the tone of of their commentary this week. Were you taken aback by it? Were you surprised by it? Is this just the norm? Yeah, no, I was taken aback by it. It's, it's the strongest I've seen from IFAC. Um, I, I think ever, certainly in recent years, they did have a bit of a go uh, in the late, you know, 2017, 2016 period, uh, which which was followed by the government probably tightening up on things a bit and moving the budget into surplus. But over the last few years, they've mainly concentrated the fire their fire on the government's lack of longer term planning, if you like. Mm. Uh, but my goodness, they opened up. Um, they opened up the barrels this time. And what's the number of their argument there, Cliff, about budget uh, 2024? So they are unhappy with the way spending has been categorised and they don't accept that the one-off spending that the government are presenting as one-off is really one-off spending. Is that the nub of it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, So things like the money that's been set aside, for example, for Ukrainian refugees, they would argue that that, you know, fair enough to have put that in the in the temporary box on day one when nobody knew how the war was going to play out but 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 more realistic now to to count that as part of of ongoing spending uh, and similarly they're critical of some of the energy supports the renewal of some of them in the latest budget and of course of the uh, handling of health spending uh, and, you know it does appear likely that that's going to run over budget this year and next year and indeed it has done so for each of the last however many years Mm. now at this stage. So, you know, I think on their own, they're all valid points and and they're all points that, you know, that 
you know, the fiscal council isn't paid to be popular. So, uh, you know, it is, this is its job to point out things like that. Still surprised by some of the tone of mm. what they've said and the use of words like gimmickry in particular. Mm. And I think that probably won't be popular down in the Department of Finance, um, who where I presume they would argue, um, and Michael Bagrat has been out on this, but I'm sure we'll hear more from other ministers in, in the weeks ahead, but I'm sure they would argue that, look, they were dealing with very difficult situations through COVID, uh, through the war, through the cost of living crisis, and it'll take a while to get you know everything back on track. Mm. So points were valid. Language, not so sure about um it was certainly out there and, you know, if, if, I suppose if the Fiscal Council wanted to get attention <laughs> and wanted to get people to listen to what they're saying, they've certainly succeeded. I have a sneaky suspicion that whilst the people in the Department of Finance will be going mad and the politicians won't like it today, they'd rather put up with a couple of days um, of bad headlines from IFAC than, you know, not have a political budget next time around. That's just the reality oh, I, of it. Absolutely. And I think uh, whatever about this year, whatever about this year's budget, um, if the government lasts to next October, mm. uh, you'd have to think that the, um, that the, uh, you know, the temptation will, will, will be enormous. That said, you know, it will be difficult for them, I think, on a few fronts. The first is that despite the fact that the uh, corporation tax figures have, have, you know, bounce back again. Mm. They're not going to be ahead of target this year. They, they may well come in on target. And it's the fact that they've been ahead of target in all the recent years uh, that have really left room for, for governments to go for the, I think it's the everything at once mm. or everything now uh, approach that uh, was criticised by IFAC. So, so, so that, you know, things could just be a little bit tighter. And also, I think they'll face some kind of existential questions around things like the energy credits because if, Energy prices have fallen back more next year, but are still above the levels that they have been, you know, they were at for many years. Is there still the case to give, you know, 300 euro yes. in payments to households or not? And can a government that does that really play the prudence card in the election? Mm. And you would assume that that is one of the cards that the coalition wants to play because they will, you know, they're pointing to Sinn Féin as, you know, wrecking the economy, wrecking the public finances, and that's the accusation they're going to level. And if they're going to, uh, you know, they can't have it both ways, I yeah. guess, come, come the next uh, budget. It'll be interesting. Indeed, yeah. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm chatting to Cliff Taylor, columnist with the Irish Times, about the state of the economy in light of the exchequer figures this week. Um, before I turn to inflation, uh, Cliff, you mentioned there that they'll want to appear prudent and both of these ministers have, um, I think, presented themselves very well and behaved very responsibly. Maybe Pascal Donoghue to his detriment in the 2020 yeah. election campaign. But they're both now being speculated about um, moving on to greener pastures. And maybe neither of them will be here this time next year. So I just wanted to get your view on what you thought about the Pascal Donoghue IMF potential role as a director there. Is that credible in your view? Uh, yeah, the, the political staff here are all of a dither at this possibility. All yeah. right, it's very interesting. And it's obviously all the fact of Leinster House. Yeah, I think it's a possibility. Um, Pascal Donoghue would be a, a credible candidate. I was looking at the the kind of spec that was set out by the IMF for the, for the last uh, person to get it or the last time the job was up for filling and, you know, he would fill, tick all the relevant boxes. Uh, but equally, the lesson 
again, reading up about previous IMF managing directors and how they were appointed, is that it's an intensely political process. Mm. Uh, it is a European that has always in the past been appointed. Uh, but for that to happen, obviously that person has to have the support of all of Europe, uh, including the UK, ideally, uh, and also uh, the support of America to, to, to get over the line. Mm. Um, now, Pascal, who would be would be well enough set, you would think in that context, uh, he seems to get on well with Janet Yellen. Uh, he's well known around Europe from his chairing of the or his presidency of the Eurogroup. Um, but nonetheless, there are going to be a lot of other people sniffing around this job. I expect, like yeah. finance ministers, commissioners, central bankers, and as 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 my colleague Pat Lee was writing earlier this week, if this falls into the uh, general divvy up of jobs as the new European uh, Commission is formed uh, next autumn, you know, who knows what way it will fall. So, you know, we might speculate perhaps, and I, I don't know this, I'm only, I'm only mm. reading the tea leaves that, you know, the reason Pascal Dunhu might be having discussions about this is that it, it might be to his advantage if he does want this job to, 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 to get himself out front mm. and get some nod from America and perhaps his EU finance ministers early enough next year before the whole shamazzle starts about, you know, who the next European Commission president is, who the yeah. next High Commissioner yeah, I, for Foreign Affairs is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I also just wonder that in the context of Brexit and Europe, you know, kind of trying to um, help Ireland in that EU, uh, you know, uh, UK row constantly, maybe that would go in our favour as well. I don't know. But anyway, it's also, lovely. Yeah, an interesting point is, uh, you know, what, way, what, what will the UK do? Will they put forward their own candidates? Hmm. Um, will they support a European candidate in the context of Brexit that's interesting too they they had threatened to put forward their own person last last time but didn't in the end hmm. well we don't even have time to speculate about Michael McGrath going to the commission now that's maybe another yeah. day I want to ask you before you go though today about inflation uh, Cliff yeah. um, inflation in the Irish economy now has fallen to 2.3% the lowest in two and a half years and close to the European Central Bank target of 2% and um, is this going to have a tangible effect on households? Is it, you know, do you see it going further? What's your take on, on those new inflation figures? Yeah, it's good. Like? I mean, it is good. Uh, yeah, bear in mind, I suppose, that this is the, the EU measure of inflation. And when we get our own measure, the consumer price index will, 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 will be higher because it will include the impact of mortgage rates, which have risen. Um, there'll probably be some bumping in the annual figures over the next few months because of because of the month that's been compared within the previous year and, and the bumps that were that, that were there as well. But yes, in a general sense, there's no doubt that inflation has come down and has come down much more quickly, I think, than anyone had anticipated. Mm. Uh, so that, that is good for households. The flip side, I suppose, is that prices remain, you know, most prices remain much higher than they were uh, a couple of years ago. So it'll take households a while to catch up, if you like. Yeah, and that's the thing that people often ignore when they hear inflation yeah. has gone down. <laughs> prices are still rising. They're just not yeah, rising. Are, are, are certainly high. High, uh, exactly. Much higher than they were. So, so, so that is a factor as well. Cliff, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much for being with us again and for trying to read the tea leaves with us which you do always so well. That was Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks. This is News Talks Taking Stock and after the break we'll speak to the author of a new book. It's called The Fund and it looks inside one of the biggest hedge fund companies in the world. Stay tuned for that.
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, last year, the billionaire founder of the world's biggest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio, announced that he was stepping down from the company. Ray Dalio was somebody who was famous and admired the world over in business for his achievements. And my next guest book, it's called The Fund. It's an award-winning book and it's written by the New York Times journalist Rob Copeland and it challenges that narrative of the businessman by looking inside the company Bridgewater to see what life was really like working there. And I'm delighted to welcome Rob to the programme now. Rob, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you. Now, I'm really enjoying this read, Rob, but to start us off and before we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, the book itself, maybe just um, give our listeners a, an overview of who Ray Dalio is and how successful the company Bridgewater actually is. So Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's biggest hedge fund. I have lots of clients all over the world, uh, including in, in the UK and across Europe. And even more than being famous for being wealthy, uh, he's famous as the inventor of what he calls the principles. It's a, a book that he put out that he's promoted on TED Talks and in, in just an incredible number of interviews all across the world that claims to be sort of a guideline for what he calls how to achieve a meaningful life with meaningful relationships. And so he's really become just as famous as sort of a self-help guru as he is as an investor. Mm. And it, we'll get into the principles in a second and and the timing of those principles when they popped up is quite interesting. But he is seen as a kind of visionary, you know, in, in the financial world. Like he was ahead of the curve on a lot of things, things that we might take for granted now that we know about, like hedging and spreads and futures. He did seem to 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 be, you know, ahead of the posse on that. Maybe you talk us through some of the um, innovative things that he did in his early career to make um, Bridgewater such a successful company. Sure. So what Ray does is starting in the late 70s, early 80s, is he becomes uh, very good at selling himself to clients as someone who is not necessarily going to make them the most money, but who's going to protect them from losing money. So he does this both to individuals and to companies. So for instance, for a company like McDonald's, he says, listen, instead of the price of the McNugget having to go up and down based on you know how much it costs to feed the chickens, why don't we use futures and other uh, financial instruments to fix your costs so that you can uh, keep the cost of McNuggets steady? And this was genuinely uh, innovative. Mm. So far as a fund investor, what he does far ahead of his time is he starts to say that Bridgewater and his investments aren't based on you know what he personally may think at any one moment or another, but that he has this sort of secretive set of rules, and it's a rules-based investing. It's a system. And there are lots of firms that do this now with varying degrees of success, but it is truly in the 80s and 90s, you know, this was still the era when people claimed to be able to read the stock ticker, Mm. you know, just trust their gut. And he was incredibly uh, successful at, uh, at this sort of new paradigm. Yeah, and you frequently refer to him in the book as a, as a great storyteller. And, and one of the ways that, I suppose, he positioned himself very cleverly was to go out exactly on that premise and to, you know, tell the stories of the stock market and how he and Bridgewater as a company saw the macroeconomic landscape. And, you know, he really positioned himself cleverly. And this really contributed to his success, didn't it? 
Oh, it's, it's remarkable. I, I did something with my research assistant that I hope no one else does, which is I went back and I, I actually read every single media interview that Ray Dalio had ever given. And despite the fact that he now claims, you know, oh, goodness, I don't want any attention at all. Mm. He, for years, for decades, has been a doomsday prophet. He has been claiming that recession is right around the corner. You know, he just recently said that we're at the risk of a civil war of in America, that we're at risk of World War III. And it's easy to dismiss this, but it is a great storytelling device when you are an investment manager. Mm. Because you say, hey, you're in peril. We're all in peril. I will help protect you. Mm. And he's probably the greatest marketer of that argument um, I think, in the history of Wall Street. Yeah, and gets a lot of credit for predicting what was going to happen on the housing bubble, particularly in America. But he's not a great storyteller, it seems, when it comes to himself, because he doesn't place a lot of store on other things that happened in his own life that made him privately very wealthy. So this was a big reveal for me. When Ray tells the story of his life, he talks about how he was the son of a jazz musician, came from nothing, was a golf caddy, and grew to be you know, worth $20 billion. And that's all true, but he leaves out several incredibly important legs up. One, he entirely writes out of the story that he ingratiated himself with this wealthy New York family, becomes sort of their surrogate son, and that they help him start Bridgewater. (laughs) And two, that his wife uh, is a Vanderbilt Whitney. Um, One of the great shocks of this project for me was, you know, Ray claims that he actually went bankrupt or that he went bust in 1982. Um, that he had to borrow money from his dad. But it makes no sense to me, because at that point, he was married to a Vanderbilt Whitney living in a four-story New York City townhome. Mm. Um, And he claims that his, I believe he had to sell his car um, to stay afloat. He still has never explained this interesting dichotomy between the incredible wealth that he married into and the idea that he did it all, you know, on his own. Mm. And I suppose this brings me to the the. The, the, the part in your book, is it's, I think it's part of the title, the word unraveling, because when I looked at it, I thought, well, well Bridgewater is still a very um, successful company. He's still got a great reputation. What's unraveling here? But the, the, the thing is, when you do start to read this book, you start to question all of the things that you thought you knew about him from his TED Talks or his, his, um, his papers on, you know, um, future forecasting and stuff. Um, Let's just take a look at the principles, because I hadn't realized until I read this book that the principles came after a lot of his success. So can you just talk us through your theory about what these principles kind of set out to achieve for him? I think it's a sort of retrospective attempt at a legacy. But can you give us what what you think these principles? Sorry, first of all, maybe explain to us what the principles are. I know that there's lots of them. You can't go through them all. But in general, what the principles of Ray Dalio set out to do. Well, even the term, the principles, is a bit of a misnomer because he's constantly adding and subtracting to them. Um, Anytime someone seems to bring an argument against him, he says, I have a new principle for that. So he's already a billionaire by the mid-2000s before he ever says the word principles. Mm. And they start as, you know, just a collection of a few pages of sort of how people at Bridgewater should should work. And, And they're saying, you know, we should be honest with one another. We should not be afraid to tell each other hard truths. Um, We should elevate the most talented people over less talented people. But over time, they've turned into this manifesto of literally hundreds of 
of rules, and he starts to you know film his employees um, and make case studies of when they are uh, when they're falling short of the so-called principles. Um, at one point in the book, the CEO of Bridgewater, who's been brought in, actually says to Ray, "Ray, these aren't principles. This is a religion." Mm. And so the the real story of the book and of the unraveling um, is the unraveling of the legend and the fiction that that Ray has told about himself and continues to tell uh, to this day. Mm. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and my guest is Rob Copeland, who is an award-winning New York Times journalist. And we're talking about his book, The Fund, which is about the hedge fund manager, Ray Dalio. Rob, um, just one of the principles that he has in his um, manifesto, as you call it, is this um, need for radical transparency. And how that was transposed within the company was fairly radical. Maybe you'll talk to us about some of the practices that people who worked in Bridgewater had to put up with under his reign. So a core part of the principles is that there's no such thing as a small problem. And to make sure that Ray Dalio in particular was aware of all these small problems, he begins to record everything at Bridgewater. And he takes the tapes of all these recordings and he creates something called the Transparency Library. And by the way, if if people listening to this think that this sounds too strange to be true, I also believed it was too strange to be true um, until I, I found out that it really was true. And so he has this repository of all these incidents and he creates these studies that, frankly, serve to embarrass everyone and show that only Ray is capable of, of being the best at, at everything. Mm. One of Ray's principles, which he then eliminates, as I said, you know, he's always adding and subtracting to principles. His principle is people have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth. Now, I can tell you that in my over a decade of, of working um, on this book and other stories about Bridgewater, I've come to examples of virtually everyone at Bridgewater being humiliated, um, but none of Ray Dalio himself. Mm. And I know that he didn't speak to you for this book, although you did offer to speak to him. Lots of other people did. Um, Like, as you say, it is quite unbelievable when you go through the stories, the stories of the scorecards and and baseball cards, and you can describe those in a moment uh, for our listeners. But how on earth did these practices go unchecked? Well, this is sort of the $150 billion question of Bridgewater. And the answer is twofold. One, unlike other, you know, the lawyers would like me to call it personality-based organizations. Unlike other organizations like that, um, Bridgewater pays you a lot of money to stay. So, you know, even secretaries are getting paid more than $200,000 a year. So you may be willing to put up with a lot for a paycheck. The other aspect here is that the principles offer you growth. They offer you the promise of a a higher level version of yourself. So if you were to challenge them, then you would be to essentially say that you know more about how to live a meaningful life than your charismatic multi-billionaire leader. There is a moment in the book, it actually happens more than once, where when Ray is being challenged, he says to an employee, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Mm. That's sort of a, a, a self-defeating argument there because they work for him. He is, by definition, the, the richest. He can always win the argument mm. in that line. And that notion of the company offering them 
one, money, two, success, and three, this better version of themselves is the thing for me which really sets it apart from being a business into that kind of cult um, atmosphere, if you like. When you were talking to people about it now, were was anyone willing to go on the record? Are there people who um, were talking freely or did everybody remain anonymous? So a, a large number of people were willing to go on the record. And what happened was Bridgewater began threatening people who they thought of, who they thought were speaking to me. So I made a decision that I would not name as any sources anyone who worked at Bridgewater because Bridgewater has a a pattern of suing people and taking people to the ends of the earth who they think are talking to journalists. Mm. But the important thing about the book too is it's not just what people said to me. I have, you know, in writing emails um, and other and videos and recordings of these these goings on. You know, there are moments inside Bridgewater in the book where the own Bridgewater's own HR department says to Ray, people think we are a cult. Our health insurance costs are going up because uh, so many people are on antidepressants and therapy. And, well, I won't spoil what Ray's response is, but you can imagine his answer was not, oh, yes, I'm running a cult. Mm. But look, for all of this, um, the company is hugely successful. So we're looking at a company that on paper is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. The people who work there are being incentivized. They know what they're buying into. So does that workplace, cult, workplace culture, however nefarious and unorthodox we might see it, um, actually lend itself to creating a very successful company? Well, the, the answer there is actually that Bridgewater's most successful years all happened before Ray invents the principles out of thin air. For the last 15 years, Bridgewater has been an incredibly underperforming hedge fund and incredible um, compared to its peers and compared to the market. But this comes full circle back to the storytelling that Ray tells. And again, we should give him credit for this. Mm. Whenever Bridgewater underperforms, he says, oh, we're merely collecting more data to become a better investment firm. We're learning from our mistakes because the principles tell us that we have to learn from our mistakes. I don't know of any, I, I cover Wall Street, so I, I talk to a lot of successful financial firms. I don't know of any other firm that could get away with this argument um, for so long. But because Ray has positioned himself and been sort of praised worldwide, he's been very successful at keeping Bridgewater afloat. He certainly has. Well, Rob, it is a fantastic read. I'm actually listening to it on Audible at the moment and I can highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in business at all for that Christmas present. It's it's a great one. Um, but Rob, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for now. That was Rob Copeland of the New York Times. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. After the break, we turn stateside to see what's gone wrong in Ron DeSantis' campaign for the Republican nomination in the US presidential race. You welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now take a quick listen to this. I have delivered results. That's what we need for this country. And you have other candidates up here like Nikki Haley. She caves. Anytime the left comes after her, anytime the media comes after her. Nikki, you were bankrupt when you left the UN. After you left the UN, you became a military contractor. You actually started joining service on the board of Boeing, whose back you scratched for a very long time. 
and then gave foreign multinational speeches like Hillary Clinton is, and now you're a multimillionaire. That math does not add up. It adds up to the fact that you are corrupt. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting so her. So I'm going to take, Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. You seem to be saying Donald Trump is no longer mentally fit to be president. Is that what you think? The idea that we're going to put someone up there that's almost 80 and there's going to be no effects from that, we all know that that's not true. If you're not answering you it. Just is don't he fit? Like, you, is have he your, fit? you have no. your thing. Is he fit you or have isn't your he? thing. They're afraid to offend. And See, let I me wanna, tell you I something. Wanna, if you're afraid, on, if you're afraid to offend Donald Trump, then what are you going to do when you sit across from President Xi, you sit across from the Ayatollah, you sit across from Putin? Now, that was just a flavour of this week's final Republican debate before the 2024 Republican primaries, which are looming large on the horizon. Joining me now to discuss the state of play is Caroline Vakil, who is campaign reporter with The Hill. Caroline, that wasn't pretty, was it? So, you know, what we saw sort of take place yesterday is, um, you know, this dwindling field taking shape um, where we saw, um, you know, as you, you played those clips of Ron DeSantis from Florida, um, Nikki Haley, um, the former UN ambassador, the biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and um, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, all trying to battle it out to, you know, eventually, uh, essentially convince voters that they are the true Trump alternative. Um, there were a lot of, you know, attacks flying back and forth. It was very fiery exchange, um, and arguably was probably Florida Governor Ron DeSantis his best performance yet. Um, the big question, of course, is whether or not this debate um, or any of the ensuing ones are going to really make much of a difference given Trump's lead in the polls right now. Yeah, and Donald Trump wasn't there again. And I suppose on this side of the pond, uh, we're used to you know him being the person who sparks the media frenzy around something. So I'm just wondering, is it the same in the States? Because we didn't hear a great deal about this debate in the run-up to it or even in the aftermath where you got all that spin that's normally happening. Was it a big deal in America? Um, I definitely think that these debates have become dwindling in terms mm -hmm. of interest. Um and I think that's for a few reasons, as you definitely noted. Um, the fact that Trump's absence kind of takes some of that viewership away. A lot of times he does counter-programming, and he did so for the first three debates. He didn't even do that for the fourth debate. He held, uh, he participated in a private fundraiser in Florida, um, which I think just essentially goes to show that he has you know, even stopped really caring much about the debates. So in terms of what the debates are used for, I think donors and Republicans, Republican strategists are still tuning into them because, you know, there have been some donors who have been on the sidelines who maybe are looking for an alternative to Trump, but no, don't know which one to pick. And I think that Nikki Haley has definitely benefited the most from these past three performances. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of that momentum on, on our side. But I think that, you know, it's it's going to be it's almost Christmas soon. The Iowa caucuses are more than a month away, and so there's a lot of pressure for donors to get in or get out. Mm. And you know, I, I think at this point, it's sort of like if they don't already have their choices, they're going to have to make one soon. 
Um, otherwise, you know, it's going to be increasingly difficult to find um, a challenger to Trump uh, going into next year. Yeah, let's talk about Nikki Haley for a moment because she has attracted some pretty big donors now. Um, the the Koch brothers, who for famously for years have been trying without success to stop Donald Trump, um, they're backing her now. Um, and this week, she certainly seemed to be the one um, who people were targeting um, throughout it, with the exception maybe of Chris Christie. But um, is her momentum on the rise? And, you know, is it is she like, has she now kind of knocked out Ron DeSantis as number two to Donald Trump, however far apart they all may be from Trump at the moment? Is she the one that we should be looking at? I think that she's, that's certainly the way her campaign would like to to pitch it, that, that she... Um, you know, I think because she has attracted all of these attacks and attention, I think it is in a lot of ways a nod to her momentum. I think, you know, this is sort of a bit of a two-pronged sort of take right now, because in Iowa, you still have DeSantis um, pulling behind Trump and Haley pulling in third. But then in New Hampshire and South Carolina, Haley is performing better than DeSantis. Mm. And so I think that you know, in a lot of ways, to your point, Nikki Haley has been, you know, really courting some of these establishment types, including Americans for Prosperity, um, that Koch brothers backed group that is going to be very influential in some of these early states and organizing. But of course, you know, Ron DeSantis still has some key figures behind him, including um, the Iowa governor, uh, Kim Reynolds, um, an influential evangelical leader, Bob Vanderplot. Uh, so it's it's too, I think, early to say right now that Haley is surpassing DeSantis. I think that's what her campaign would like. Mm. Um, but I think at this point, you know, it, it, it increasingly does look like at this point a two-way match to be the Trump alternative to the former president. Um, and it kind of remains to be seen, you know, that's why all eyes are going to be on Iowa next month. Uh, to sort of see how some of this shakes out. Mm. And Caroline, you felt that DeSantis had a strong night during the week in the debate that he's kind of been doing a bit better of late. I know there's a, a lot of changes in his backroom team. You might just talk to us a little bit about how his campaign is shifting recently. Sure. So there's been um, definitely some shakeups within his super PAC, I would say, Um you know, less so on the campaign side, but within his super PAC, it's played a um, increasingly important role over these last couple, I mean, this this entire year. I mean, the campaign has really leaned on the super PAC in terms of ads. Um, it's hosted events for him. And so in a lot of ways, it's been a big deal to see sort of these leadership changes take place over the months. You know, people who have been fired or who have left, I believe the New York Times just reported this week that one of the former advisors, Phil Cox, is is rejoining the super PAC. And so I think in some ways it underscores some of the turmoil that the super PAC has been facing as they're trying to create this argument and this narrative that DeSantis is still the chief rival to Trump, the only one that can take him out. Um, Obviously, this isn't helpful for the campaign or the super PAC to be having to answer questions around 
all of these changing pieces when it's becoming so close to the Iowa caucuses. Um, you know, uh, there were also reports that Nikki Haley's New Hampshire director had left. Um, so, you know, some shakeups on, on both sides. You might just explain for, for us all um, here the super PAC structures and how important and prevalent they are in American politics, because it's not something that we really have here. Sure. So super PACs are basically independent uh, groups that are not allowed to coordinate with campaigns at all. Um, there's definitely been a lot of questions this election cycle around um, DeSantis's super PAC and how much it has tested the limits of that. Um, because, of course, DeSantis has been participating in a lot of these um, events that have been hosted by the super PAC, which is um, not unusual and, and not unheard of, but the uh, ex- essentially the amount of oomph and support mm-hmm. and you know all of the sort of resources that the super PAC has been placing behind DeSantis, um, I think is particularly noteworthy. Um, you know, it's a little bit different in some of these other campaigns where we're, we typically try to see more of a um, drawn out, or I, I guess a better way to describe it is is a more robust uh, and, and fully formed out campaign team um, where, you know, you have a larger campaign, multiple staff in, in each of the states, and you're kind of leaning on the campaign itself. Mm. Super PACs, you know, another kind of important difference is that um, with campaigns, you know, when they're raising money, they also typically get better ad rates than a super PAC does. And so it's important because when they're fundraising, if a campaign is able to sort of finance some of those ads, they're able to save money in a way that a super PAC can't. And so I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the DeSantis campaign's burn rate, the super PAC's burn rate, and I think how those are sort of underscoring some problems as well within the campaign like operation. Yeah, certainly from this remove, the lines to me have always seemed extremely blurred. I, I don't know who would regulate that or how it's policed, but it's it's a vast and vast amount of money that are tied up in these super PACs on behalf of, of candidates or endorsements. Um, Caroline, I just want to get your sense of all of this, you know, a month out from the primaries, as, as you say there. Um, so when we're looking at it from here, Trump is so far ahead in the Republican race in particular. It doesn't seem like either of these two would catch him. But is there a sense that or this could actually be important um, because maybe in one of those five cases that Donald Trump is going through at the moment, something significant could happen to take him out of it? Or is that just is that is that just being discounted? I think it's we're sort of juggling a couple different things here. Um, so those legal controversies that Trump is dealing with, they all have very different timelines. And if he were to get convicted or acquitted, I don't necessarily know when those would happen. Mm. And those might happen after the primaries and after maybe he secures the GOP nomination, at which point, you know, sort of a lot of question marks about what happens after that. Yeah. Timing, um, timing is everything really, isn't it? Exactly. The other thing, too, is that I think that's one of the things that has been so, um, I think, so important about this primary is that Trump has continued to wield such a large lead over his uh, rivals, despite the fact that he has four indictments. I think there are Republicans who feel like some of this is politically motivated. Um, There are some who are going to be always loyal to Trump. 
Uh, these rivals are trying to court this contingent, uh, two contingents here, the, the never Trumpers and those who are, you know, not necessarily against voting for Trump mm-hmm. and are open to another alternative. But that window to coalesce those two groups is dwindling. And I think that I think that's why it's it's so important here, because I think that for voters, you know, they may see that Trump has four indictments, but that hasn't really moved the needle enough. And so I think it's just kind of raising questions at this point about how much of a of a factor that's going to play. But it is going to be certainly a conundrum if he gets a conviction um, and, you know, he's already the Republican nomination or if it happens in the middle of these, you know, early primaries, that, that's going to raise a lot of headaches and, and more question marks about what to do next. Yeah, it's it's the it's the question, isn't it? Not only has has it not moved the needle in a negative way for Trump, but also has helped him a lot, I think, in campaign financing. But anyway, we're going to continue to watch this space with a lot of interest. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. Caroline, it was a real pleasure to talk to you today. That was Caroline Vakil, who's campaign reporter with The Hill. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks, as always, to all of my guests today for their valuable time and their insights. I'd also like to thank the producer of Taking Stock this week, Simon Keane, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Any comments on today's items, you can email us, as always, at takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is coming up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston Sunday morning at 9 on News Talk.